Well, let, let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of a new week, and thank you for the gift of this Bible study. Send your Holy Spirit to be present with us as we discuss your Holy Word. Teach us something new about you and ourselves today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So I'm going to start by reading select verses from Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. The word was true and it concerned a great conflict. He understood the word having received understanding and the vision. At that time, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. I looked up and saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. The people who were with me did not see the vision, though a great trembling fell upon them and they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone to see this great vision. My strength left me and my complexion grew deathly pale and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And when I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a trance, my face to the ground. But then a hand touched me and roused me to my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, greatly beloved, pay attention to the words that I'm going to speak to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. So while he was speaking this word to me, I stood up trembling. He said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. While he was speaking these words to me, I turned my face towards the ground and I was speechless. Then one in human form touched my lips and I opened my mouth to speak and said to the one who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, such pains have come upon me that I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For I'm shaking and no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one in human form touched me and strengthened me. He said, do not fear, greatly beloved, you are safe. Be strong and courageous. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and I said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. All right, so here we have another vision given to Daniel and it is amidst a great conflict. And one of the things that we can take note of and that we might see a little bit later in this study are some of the parallels between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And Daniel speaks of a great conflict and the book of Revelation mirrors that language with what they call the great ordeal. But God's revelation always comes amidst a great conflict. It is rarely when things are peaceful and calm and serene and people are comfortable that they see these visions and hear the word of the Lord, but rather during a time of conflict. And as we read this book, you might ponder what the great conflicts are in your life and what the great conflicts are in this world, because part of reading this literature is that even though the outer circumstances change and the dramas that unfold us rotate. 
I think that the great conflict of life, whatever that means to you, is always present in the background or the foreground, and it is the context in which we hear God's word. And so we can reflect on that a little bit together uh, in just a bit. But, but then Daniel sees this vision, and there is um, a man with, you know, face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches, arms and legs of bronze. His words are like the sound of the roar of a multitude. And I just want to, again, compare that to the language of the book of Revelation, where it says, I saw one like the son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and hair were white. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And so clearly the language of Revelation and Daniel chapter 10 are mirroring each other. And whatever John the seer saw who wrote the book of Revelation is similar to that vision that Daniel had. And so want to draw those parallels. And clearly this is not at first a comforting thing that a great trembling falls upon those who are with Daniel and they hide themselves and Daniel himself falls to the ground in a trance. And this is what people do whenever they're in the presence of holiness. And part of the point being made is that something numinous, something holy, something godly is invading Daniel's life. But then I want you to notice what it says in verse 10, but then a hand touched me and roused me to my hands and my knees. And if you read the New Testament, one of the things that you'll notice about Jesus was that he was always touching people. He touched people who were not clean and thus made himself unclean, which prefigures what he would do on the cross, taking upon himself the sin of the world. But he would also touch those that were not unclean. And part of how Jesus would heal people would he would touch them. And that touch would heal them from physical illness, but also emotional and spiritual illness. And so an example of that would be Matthew 17, 7, which I believe is the story of the transfiguration where the disciples have a similar vision uh, as Daniel did, except the person transfigured is Jesus himself. And just like Daniel, they fall to the ground in a trance. I mean, they are basically done for, and they only get up when Jesus touches them. And so I want us to pay attention to that theme of being touched by God, especially in the midst of our fear. And what is the word spoken to Daniel? We heard this last week, but again, it says, Daniel greatly beloved. And we're going to see that language echoed again, I think, in chapter 12. Three times in the book of Daniel, someone divine calls Daniel by the name greatly beloved. And so we could draw all kinds of parallels there with what we're told in our baptism, or at more particular at Jesus's baptism, where the Father says, you are my beloved, and with you I am well pleased. One of the things we saw last week was how Daniel was a representative of his people whenever he prayed for them, that prayer of repentance. And I think we could also say that Daniel is Israel's representative and receiving the name greatly beloved. This word that is spoken over Daniel, it's meant to be spoken over all of Israel or over all of God's people too. 
And once he hears that name, greatly beloved, he's then told to stand on your feet. Um, there are many places in scripture where Jesus will say that to people, get up, stand on your feet. And there is something about being told that we are God's beloved that enables us to stand up uh, in a different way, whether we interpret that literally or metaphorically. And then finally, the linchpin, verse 12, he says, do not fear. And I like to remind people that the most common command in scripture has nothing to do with money or sex or helping the poor, as important as all of those things are, but the most common command in scripture is all about do not be afraid. And here Daniel is told, do not be afraid. And so we have this paradox, right? That there is a divine encounter that on the one hand fills us with fear, not the fear of punishment, not the fear of having made a mistake and being exiled or banished, but the type of fear that says we are in the presence of something big and holy, but that voice then says, you are greatly beloved, do not be afraid. And so this was an important word for Daniel to hear. It was a very important word for second century Jews and first century Christians to hear who read this text as a persecuted people. Think about the pastoral message of hearing God say, you know, stand on your feet, you are greatly loved, do not be afraid when there is a great conflict, to go back to the first verse of this chapter, a great conflict all around, how are we to live in the midst of that conflict? We are to live as people who know that we are greatly beloved, who are not afraid, and who hear the Lord speak that word to us. Um, but again, verse 15, Daniel is still speechless because he is in the presence of God. And so verse 16, then one in human form, who is most likely the same as the son of man in Daniel chapter seven touches his lips. And one of the things we said about Daniel at the beginning of this study was that he was counted or this book is counted among the prophetic writings, even though it doesn't look like the other minor prophets. But here, this is your typical prophet call story, right? Where God touches your lips. We see the exact same thing happen, for instance, in Isaiah chapter six, where the angel takes the coals from the altar with a pair of tongs and touches them to Isaiah's lips. Uh, and only then is he commissioned to speak God's words. And so this is like your typical prophetic call story. Only after God touches our lips, do we have anything meaningful to say? And I think we could talk a lot about speech and where it comes from and what it means to kind of speak our own words versus the words that God gives us. And that could be a point of conversation. But again, the whole point of the chapter is really summarized in verse 18, where this one in human form, this one like the son of man, who is clearly the Christ figure for us Christians, and perhaps the same one who is in that furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, touches him and strengthens him and says, do not be afraid, greatly beloved, you are safe, be strong and courageous. And so I think this is a word not just for Daniel and not just for people in the second century BCE and first century CE who are reading this, but also for us. 
you know, whenever you are in the midst of a great conflict, when there are family concerns that you're scared about and praying for, when things in your life aren't working, when you look around and it looks like the whole world's, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, there's a great conflict. How do we tap into that experience of the Son of Man touching us and giving us strength? Because the point is, we don't have strength apart from that touch. It is God's touch that strengthens us, and it is God's word that casts out our fear by saying, do not be afraid. Greatly beloved, you are safe. Be strong and courageous. And one thing I'll note is that, you know, we often try to find strength and courage apart from God. We just tell people to look within. But biblically speaking, strength and courage are not you know, just a strong personality or a lot of willpower or the same reactivity you find in the animal kingdom, even though we share a lot of DNA with animals. That's not what strength and courage is. That might be aggression. It might be power. But strength and courage are theological concepts that are grounded in humility, right? So the chapter begins with Daniel falling to his face. He encounters God And like Isaiah, he is undone and God has to touch him, get him up, remind him that he is beloved and safe, and then impart to him the strength and courage he needs to get on with the very difficult business of life. And I think you and I could talk about in what way um, that's the same for us. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there and see what questions you have and uh, what strikes you about Daniel chapter 10. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish, such as never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the word secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth, and evil shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and two others appeared, one standing on this bank of the stream and one on the other. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was upstream, How long shall it be until the end of these wonders? The man clothed in linen who was upstream raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. Happy are those who persevere and attain the three, the 1,335 days, but you go your way and rest. You shall rise for your reward at the end of the days. All right. So Daniel 12, this is how the book ends. There is nothing after Daniel chapter 12 and So first we're told that uh, Michael, the great prince and protector of your people shall arise. And this is our Michael. uh, And I just think that's really neat. Um, You know, most churches are named after a saint who did this, that, or the other. We get to be named after a great archangel. uh, And so the, the, the great protector of your people. And I hope that if nothing else, symbolically or literally, uh, you take comfort in knowing that you have a protector, that Michael is, in a sense, our protector. And I think it's just really neat reading this and to say, this is who we're named after. 
one who protects God's people uh, in the midst of a great conflict, really. Uh, but then um, we're told that there is a time of anguish and that it's basically uh, going to be as bad as anything that's ever come into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. And here's really the verse, because this is where the doctrine of resurrection is introduced in the book of Daniel. And remember, the doctrine of resurrection is a belief that Jews held that at the end of time, that there would be a bodily resurrection where people would come out of their graves and that there would then be a judgment. Um, and we're told that many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and contempt. But then those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, like the stars forever. So a few things I want to say about this doctrine of resurrection. In the New Testament, uh, we see that there are different camps. And so most Jews in Jesus's day believed in resurrection, but not all. The Pharisees, with whom Jesus had the most dealings, believed in resurrection, and they believed that all the prophetic writings were the word of God. But an example of an alternate group would be the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a little bit more closely allied with Rome, a little bit more at home in the culture of the day. They did not hold that the prophetic writings were the word of God, but only the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. And although they might have had some vision of the, the, the afterlife, it was more like the idea of Sheol and the Old Testament than the idea of resurrection. And so, for instance, in uh, the Gospels, it is the Sadducees who come to Jesus with that silly story of the man who had seven brothers and each of the brothers died and were married to the same woman. And the great question was, uh, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They thought that this would stump Jesus. Uh, and so the Sadducees would have been a group who did not believe in resurrection. But the belief in resurrection wasn't invented in Jesus's day. It predates him by centuries and centuries. And we find it reflected here in the book of Daniel. And I say that because it's important to name that the idea of resurrection although not present, for instance, in a clear way in the book of Genesis or Exodus, it is clearly prefigured there with the great liberation from um, Egypt to the promised land, uh, but that it's not an add-on. It's not something kind of just thrown in at the end of the Old Testament, but rather it was the logical conclusion that faithful rabbis drew not just from certain verses of scripture, but from the idea of what it meant for God to be faithful to God's covenant. Because God's covenant with God's people was that in the end, evil is defeated and God's people are vindicated. And so whenever um, uh, faithful Jews saw themselves in exile, they saw people dying, they saw the wicked prevailing. You know, we see that complaint reflected in the Psalms the idea of resurrection was that this is how God is ultimately going to be faithful to God's covenant, that there will be a resurrection and that on the great day of judgment, on the great day of the Lord, which we find reflected in many books of the Old Testament, that is when God's judgment will come. And we see something similar, for instance, in 
Matthew's account of the sheep and the goats, right? You've got people on the left side, people on the right side. There's a general resurrection, and for some, that resurrection is good, and for others, it is not so good. Now, although many and most faithful Jews believed in a large resurrection of human history at the end of time, what no one saw coming, what no one predicted, and what was baffling to many was the idea that one man would be resurrected in the middle of time, which is what we believe about Jesus. And it is the faith that gave birth to the church. And so this idea of resurrection kind of shifted when all of a sudden in the middle of human history, not at the end, there is one man who is raised from the dead to kind of prefigure our own resurrection. The other thing I want to say about resurrection is that it is not the same idea uh, as secular humanism or a belief in progress. Um, Jackie made the funny comment earlier that uh, who, whatever angel was assigned to the United States of America has been sleeping on the job for a while. And um, what we see in verse four, right? Many shall be running back and forth, but evil shall increase. And so um, resurrection isn't at odds with the idea that we're called to make the world a better place. In fact, last week, you may have heard my conversation with Dr. Mark Jefferson, where he made a strong case that a belief in resurrection carries with it a responsibility uh, to be beacons of resurrection here and now and to work for justice. But resurrection often assumes that things will continue to be bad. And so we can kind of talk about that and um, what the difference is between hope and optimism, for instance, right? Because optimism is a belief that the current state of affairs will improve. Uh, hope, however, is a theological concept that says, even if things don't improve, even if this angel is right and evil shall increase, God has the last word. And ultimately, resurrection is about God having the last word. And so what does it say at the end? Happy are those who persevere, um, but you go your way and rest, for you shall rise for your reward at the end of days. So first thing I want to point out is that is the Easter message, right? We say it at every funeral service. Um, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last I shall stand upon the earth. Uh, and see him face to face, right? You shall rise for your reward at the end of days. But then verse 12, happy are those who persevere. Uh, and just to remember that the original audience of this book, whether it was read in the second century BCE or when you know Daniel actually lived at the time of the Babylonians or in the first century uh, by Christians being persecuted, um, this book was read by a persecuted community. This was not read by a community who was experiencing a comfortable existence. And so it was really important for them to hear this message, right? Happy are those who persevere. Do not be afraid. You shall rise for your reward at the end of days. Because the truth is, is that even though we read all those great stories about people being thrown into the lion's den and getting out safely or being thrown into the furnace and coming out unharmed, the people reading this book knew that sometimes, or more accurately, most times, 
if you got thrown into the furnace, that was that. And if you got thrown into the lion's den, that was that. And so what was their hope? How would God be faithful to God's covenant? Well, we're told in the final verse of the book of Daniel, rest, be at peace. You shall rise for your reward at the end of days. And that really is part of the Easter message that Christians still believe. We do believe in the resurrection. We say it every week in the Nicene Creed. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and in the life of the world to come. And so I'm going to go ahead and stop there and see what questions or comments you have. And I have some questions here uh, in case you need a little help kind of thinking through this that I'll post in the chat right now. And those questions are, the author of Daniel knows that most people who get thrown into the lion's den get eaten. What do you think the doctrine of resurrection meant to them? And we can add, what does it mean to us? And then a question, how is resurrection different from the idea of going to heaven when we die? And does Christianity believe in one, both, or none of those things? So I'll go ahead and see what y'all want to talk about. What's that, Barbara? I said, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that second question. Yeah, it's a, it's a trick. It's a funny, funny question. So I'll, I'll share my understanding and, and y'all can go ahead and correct me if you think that um, Orthodox Christianity sees it a little bit differently. So um, the question is, is there a difference between resurrection and going to heaven when you die? And which of the two does Christianity believe in or does Christianity believe in both? And um, so one thing just to know about the backdrop is that so much of early Christianity, and by the way, I'm a big fan of this. I'm not knocking Neoplatonism, but whenever Augustine wrote his confessions and he's like the early father of the church, discovering the works of Plotinus and the early Neoplatonists was really, really important. Now, if you haven't read all that stuff, which I don't expect that you have, um, the idea of the eternal soul that escapes the prison of the body to go to some other realm after death is where a lot of that kind of comes into being. Uh, and so in Platonism, the body is bad, it's evil, it's a prison, your spirit is stuck there, and death is really a liberation, and your spirit gets to kind of leave the shackles of the body and then go to heaven. So in the New Testament, uh, two things are spoken of. And if you read Paul's letter, they're both in there and it's very kind of nuanced. So one, and we see this, I mean, I could, I could quote many places where this is, um, but I'll just name Philippians. So if you read his letter to the Philippians, notice that Paul is in prison and he thinks he might die. You can read Philippians chapter one. It's all there. And he even says, uh, okay, I might live, I might die. And if I'm being honest, I don't know which one I prefer. He says, death is much better, but God might lead me here to minister to all of you. Because what he says in Philippians is that when we die, he says it very clearly, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And there are other places in scripture where something similar is echoed. So when you die, he says, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. 
Now, notice that is not a full-throated doctrine of resurrection, because resurrection is a new glorious body. Um, and then, of course, if you read the New Testament, it talks about our hope and the bodily resurrection at the end of the age. And we even see, you know, some interesting language in the book of Revelation where you have people in, quote unquote, heaven who are waiting for that final resurrection. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians, um, uh, you know, Paul is responding to a question uh, that people have of, well, okay, well, what will our body be like in the resurrection? And Paul is not very nice. He says, you fool, what a silly question. It is sown a physical body, but it is raised a spiritual body. And he, you know, talks all about the spiritual body we get, but then doesn't say anything about what it is. Um, and so long-winded way of saying, Barbara, is that both beliefs, as I read the New Testament, are very present in, the, in, in Scripture, not as a contradiction, but as an acknowledgement that if the resurrection is at the end of the age, whatever that is, what happens to those who die in Christ before then? And scripture's answer is they go to be with the Lord. And as Paul says in Philippians, that is far better than being here. But the real grand finale, as far as I'm concerned in Christianity, the thing for which we all wait is really captured in Revelation 21, where it's not we who go to God. It's not we who go to heaven, but heaven that comes to earth and the whole creation is renewed. And so what does that look like? Well, you know, that's where the Psalms say, I has not seen nor ear heard the wonderful things that God has in store for those who love him. Uh, but the reason I think it's very important to hold a doctrine of bodily resurrection, aside from the fact that orthodoxy is important, you know, that's what we believe as Christians. Uh, a, a few reasons. One is because um, if you don't have a doctrine of bodily resurrection and the salvation of the whole world, right? God saves the world. It gets very hard to value creation, right? It gets very easy for us to slip. And, you know, so why do we care for creation? Why do we care for animals, why do we, you know, if, if this is all just a dirty prison that we need to escape from, what's the point, right? But in a doctrine of resurrection, God says, no, 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 no. This is all something that I intend to restore and to make beautiful, and your job is to take care of it. So that's a uniquely Christian idea, um, that the whole cosmos, that matter is good, and that God wishes to redeem it. Um, and so that just be kind of a few thoughts I have. Yeah, Jackie. A um, couple of notes I found interesting. One is in verse two, where some rise to everlasting life. This is the only time in the Old Testament that the phrase everlasting life appears. And I thought that was interesting. And the other thing is, since I'm using a Catholic study guide for Daniel, I have two extra chapters, 13 and 14, that the Catholic Church feel are canonical and inspired, but the Protestant 
church didn't accept them, and they appear in our Apocrypha as Susanna and Bell and the Dragon. But in the Catholic Bible, they are chapters 13 and 14 of Daniel. Just thought that was interesting. Yeah, they know, thank you for, for pointing that out. And, and um, for those of you who are curious about what was left out, most of the books that Protestants, so Protestants drew a hard line of these books are not scripture. Catholics drew a hard line. These books are scripture. And of course, like good Episcopalians who like to walk the middle way, we just kind of created a funny thing, said, well, that's the Apocrypha. And it's kind of scripture, kind of not. And let's just live in that mystery. Uh, but most of the books in the Apocrypha were written in Greek. A lot of it was written in Greek and uh, kind of dates somewhere between the first century BCE and like the third century BCE. And why Protestants have a bias against including that, I don't know. But um, that's just a word about the literature that falls in the Apocrypha. All of it falls from the same date for the most part. Chapters 13 and 14 only survive in Greek translations, but the Catholics believe they were originally written in either Hebrew or Aramaic. I don't know what they base this belief on, but the surviving uh, scriptures are, are only in Greek. I thought there was a resurrection life here on earth, that it was similar to uh, trying to follow Christ, that, that in the sense that I believe in heaven and that bodily resurrection or a new kind of body. I mean, Jesus appeared in a new kind of body. It seems to me that's a witness to a bodily resurrection. But I also have always believed that we are called to live a resurrection life here. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now we're kind of getting into what do Christians believe now, right? Kind of stepping out of the world of Daniel uh, a little bit, but absolutely. Because one of the things that is true about resurrection is a lot of like the normal ways of understanding time break down. Uh, so for instance, when scripture speaks of our salvation, there is one paragraph in one of Paul's letters where he says that you were saved you are being saved and you will be saved like within three different sentences. And he uses the past, present, and future tense. And so which is it? Well, all of them are actually true. Something definitive has happened. Something definitive will happen. And something true is happening in our experience. But for that call to live as resurrected people now, I like to speak of it as reverse time travel. Uh, it's not that we go to the future, it's that the future comes to us. That's like a really good way of understanding the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to us and infuses our being. I, I, I want to say our being rather than our heart, so it doesn't sound all sentimental. Infuses our lives, our communities, but the Spirit does something in us and outside of us and with us, and that is what opens up new capacities to live a resurrected life. And whenever we studied the book of Acts, the word Jesus kept using for that, Jackie, was witness. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But what is being a witness, but trying to embody now that resurrection? Um, 
And I, I think in a recent podcast, I, I spoke of anticipating resurrection, um, that being an active word. So in the same way that you might put on a rain jacket because you anticipate it's going to rain in 10 minutes so that whenever the rain comes, you'll be ready. We can anticipate putting on the clothes of love and peace and mercy and truthfulness because as Christians, once resurrection comes, that's all there is. It's all mercy. It's all truth. It's all justice. And so if that's not a world we're at home in, we're not going to enjoy it very much. So we anticipate it now by allowing the spirit to create that space in our heart and our life so that we can embody now what will be later. I think I get, I, pardon me. Okay. The body dies ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And then the spirit leaves us and goes to heaven. But then I have a hard time wrestling that that's not it, that our spirit isn't the resurrection for us. Well, what I would say is, what I would say is the question that I think of that immediately came to mind, Gail, when you said that, you know, that's not it, uh, is whenever Abraham is visited, because this is really what Paul uses as a metaphor for this question uh, mm -hmm. in his letter to the Romans. Paul, um, uh, Abraham is visited at 99 years old, you know, 25 years after he left his home to go on this, you know crazy journey because God told him to. And, um, and God um, basically says, you're going to have a descendant and through your descendant, I'm going to bless the whole world. And now he's 99 years old. And just so you know, uh, his wife was hundred years old and the biology of human beings was the same then as it is now. You don't have kids at 74. You don't have kids at 99. And so Abraham okay. starts saying to God, he says, you know, God, let me have children through, you know, my concubine or which was, an, I know that sounds kind of odd, but it was a normal thing then. you know, I don't, I don't need, I don't necessarily need my own child. Let me kind of, let's do it this way and let me adopt. And God says, you know, no, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And Abraham says, I, I just don't think so. That's not possible. And then the angel says, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And so what I would say is that whatever belief you hold, make sure that it's the most wonderful thing you can imagine. Because the whole idea of resurrection is that there is something much more wonderful than the already wonderful thing you envision, which is being with God when you die. And as Christians, we ask the question, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And I can't think of anything more wonderful than God somehow in a dramatic, holy, cosmic, breathtakingly beautiful and magnificent way, saving and restoring the very creation that we all love and that we see um, wrecked by pollution, by sin, by tribalism, by meanness, right? Like, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? So whatever belief you hold as a Christian, you can hold whatever belief you want as long as it's the most wonderful thing you can imagine.